Chapter Four, Part Two, of the Rainbow, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But the courtship went on. Anna would find occasion to go shopping in Ilkeston at evening. She always returned with her cousin, he walking with his head over her shoulder, a little bit behind her, like the devil looking over Lincoln, as Brangwen noted angrily, and yet with satisfaction. To his own wonder, Will Brangwen found himself in an electric state of passion. To his wonder, he had stopped her at the gate as they came home from Ilkeston one night, and had kissed her, blocking her way and kissing her, whilst he felt as if some blow was struck at him in the dark. And when they went indoors, he was acutely angry that her parents looked up, scrutinising at him and her. What right had they there? Why should they look up? Let them remove themselves, or look elsewhere and the youth went home with the stars in heaven whirling fiercely about the blackness of his head, and his heart fierce, insistent, but fierce, as if he felt something balking him. He wanted to smash through something. A spell was cast over her, and how uneasy her parents were, as she went about the house unnoticing, not noticing them, moving in a spell as if she were invisible to them. She was invisible to them. It made them angry. Yet they had to submit. She went about absorbed, obscured for a while. Over him, too, the darkness of obscurity settled. He seemed to be hidden in a tense, electric darkness in which his soul, his life, was intensely active, but without his aid or attention. His mind was obscured. He worked swiftly and mechanically, and he produced some beautiful things. His favourite work was wood-carving. The first thing he made for her was a butter-stamper. In it he carved a mythological bird, a phoenix, something like an eagle, rising on symmetrical wings, from a circle of very beautiful flickering flames that rose upwards from the rim of the cup. Anna thought nothing of the gift on the evening when he gave it to her. In the morning, however, when the butter was made, she fetched his seal in place of the old wooden stamper of oak leaves and acorns. She was curiously excited to see how it would turn out. Strange, the uncouth bird moulded there, in the cup-like hollow, with curious, thick waverings running inwards from a smooth rim. She pressed another mould. Strange, to lift the stamp, and see that eagle-beaked bird raising its breast to her. She loved creating it over and over again, and every time she looked it seemed a new thing come to life. Every piece of butter became this strange, vital emblem. She showed it to her mother and father. "'That is beautiful,' said her mother, a little light coming on to her face. "'Beautiful!' exclaimed the father, puzzled, fretted. "'Why, what sort of a bird does he call it?' And this was the question put by the customers during the next weeks. "'What sort of bird you call that, as you've got on th butter?' When he came in the evening, she took him into the dairy to show him. "'Do you like it?' he asked in his loud, vibrating voice that always sounded strange, re-echoing in the dark places of her being. They very rarely touched each other. They liked to be alone together, near to each other, but there was still a distance between them. In the cool dairy the candlelight lit on the large, white surfaces of the cream pans. He turned his head sharply. It was so cool and remote in there, so remote, his mouth was open in a little, strained laugh. She stood with her head bent, turned aside. He wanted to go near to her, 
He had kissed her once. Again his eye rested on the round blocks of butter, where the emblematic bird lifted its breast from the shadow cast by the candle flame. What was restraining him? Her breast was near him, his head lifted like an eagle's. She did not move. Suddenly, with an incredibly quick, delicate movement, he put his arms round her and drew her to him. It was quick, cleanly done, like a bird that swoops and sinks close, closer. He was kissing her throat. She turned and looked at him. Her eyes were dark and flowing with fire. His eyes were hard and bright with a fierce purpose and gladness, like a hawk's. She felt him flying into the dark space of her flames, like a brand, like a gleaming hawk. They had looked at each other, and seen each other strange, yet near, very near, like a hawk stooping, swooping, dropping, into a flame of darkness. So she took the candle, and they went back to the kitchen. They went on in this way for some time, always coming together, but rarely touching. Very seldom did they kiss and then often it was merely a touch of the lips, a sign. But her eyes began to waken with a constant fire. She paused often in the midst of her transit, as if to recollect something, or to discover something. And his face became sombre, intent. He did not really hear what was said to him. One evening in August he came when it was raining. He came in with his jacket collar turned up, his jacket buttoned close, his face wet and he looked so slim and definite, coming out of the chill rain, she was suddenly blinded with love for him. Yet he sat and talked with her father and mother, meaninglessly, whilst her blood seethed to anguish in her. She wanted to touch him now, only to touch him. There was the queer, abstract look on her silvery, radiant face that maddened her father. Her dark eyes were hidden, but she raised them to the youth and they were dark with a flare that made him quail for a moment. She went into the second kitchen and took a lantern. Her father watched her as she returned. "'Come with me, Will,' she said to her cousin. "'I want to see if I put the brick over where that rat comes in.' "'You've no need to do that,' retorted her father. She took no notice. The youth was between the two wills. The colour mounted into the father's face. His blue eyes stared. The girl stood near the door her head held slightly back, like an indication that the youth must come. He rose in his silent, intent way, and was gone with her. The blood swelled in Brangwen's forehead veins. It was raining. The light of the lantern flashed on the cobbled path and the bottom of the wall. She came to a small ladder, and climbed up. He reached her the lantern, and followed. Up there in the fowl loft the birds sat in fat bunches on the perches, the red combs shining like fire. Bright, sharp eyes opened. There was a sharp crawk of expostulation as one of the hens shifted over. The cock sat watching, his yellow neck feathers bright as glass. Anna went across the dirty floor. Brangwen crouched in the loft watching. The light was soft under the red, naked tiles. The girl crouched in a corner. There was another explosive bustle of a hen springing from her perch. Anna came back, stooping under the perches. He was waiting for her near the door. Suddenly she had her arms round him, was clinging close to him, cleaving her body against his, and crying in a whispering, whimpering sound, "'Will, I love you. I love you, Will. I love you.' 
It sounded as if it were tearing her. He was not even very much surprised. He held her in his arms and his bones melted. He leaned back against the wall. The door of the loft was open. Outside the rain slanted by in fine, steely, mysterious haste, emerging out of the gulf of darkness. He held her in his arms, and he and she together seemed to be swinging in big, swooping oscillations, the two of them clasped together up in the darkness. Outside the open door of the loft in which they stood, beyond them and below them, was darkness, with a travelling veil of rain. "'I love you, Will. I love you,' she moaned. "'I love you, Will.' He held her as though they were one, and was silent. In the house Tom Brangwen waited a while, then he got up and went out. He went down the yard. He saw the curious, misty shaft coming from the loft door. He scarcely knew it was the light in the rain. He went on till the illumination fell on him dimly. Then, looking up, through the blur, he saw the youth and the girl together, the youth with his back against the wall, his head sunk over the head of the girl. The elder man saw them, blurred through the rain, but lit up. They thought themselves so buried in the night. He even saw the lighted dryness of the loft behind, and shadows and bunches of roosting fowls, up in the night, strange shadows cast from the lantern on the floor. And a black gloom of anger, and a tenderness of self-effacement, fought in his heart. She did not understand what she was doing. She betrayed herself. She was a child, a mere child. She did not know how much of herself she was squandering, and he was blackly and furiously miserable. Was he then an old man, that he should be giving her away in marriage? Was he old? He was not old. He was younger than the young thoughtless fellow in whose arms she lay. Who knew her, he or that blind-headed youth? To whom did she belong, if not to himself? He thought again of the child he had carried out at night into the barn, whilst his wife was in labour with the young Tom. He remembered the soft, warm weight of the little girl on his arm round his neck. Now she would say he was finished. She was going away, to deny him, to leave an unendurable emptiness in him, a void that he could not bear. Almost he hated her. How dared she say he was old? He walked on in the rain, sweating with pain, with the horror of being old, with the agony of having to relinquish what was life to him. Will Brangwen went home without having seen his uncle. He held his hot face to the rain, and walked on in a trance. "'I love you, Will. I love you.' The words repeated themselves endlessly. The veils had ripped and issued him naked into the endless space, and he shuddered. The walls had thrust him out, and given him a vast space to walk in. Whither, through this darkness of infinite space, was he walking blindly? Where, at the end of all the darkness, was God the Almighty, still darkly, seated, thrusting him on? I love you, Will, I love you. He trembled with fear as the words beat in his heart again, and he dared not think of her face, of her eyes which shone, and of her strange transfigured face. The hand of the hidden Almighty, burning bright, had thrust out of the darkness and gripped him, he went on subject and in fear, his heart gripped and burning from the touch. The days went by, they ran on dark padded feet in silence. He went to see Anna, but again there had come a reserve between them. 
Tom Brangwen was gloomy, his blue eyes sombre. Anna was strange and delivered up. Her face in its delicate colouring was mute, touched, dumb and poignant. The mother bowed her head and moved in her own dark world, that was pregnant again with fulfilment. Will Brangwen worked at his wood-carving. It was a passion, a passion for him to have the chisel under his grip. Verily the passion of his heart lifted the fine bite of steel. He was carving, as he had always wanted, the creation of Eve. It was a panel, in low relief, for a church. Adam lay asleep as if suffering, and God, a dim, large figure, stooped towards him, stretching forward his unveiled hand, and Eve, a small, vivid, naked female shape, was issuing like a flame towards the hand of God, from the torn side of Adam. Now Will Brangwen was working at the Eve. She was thin, a keen, unripe thing. With trembling passion, fine as a breath of air, he sent the chisel over her belly, her hard, unripe, small belly. She was a stiff little figure, with sharp lines, in the throes of torture and ecstasy of her creation. But he trembled as he touched her. He had not finished any of his figures. There was a bird on a bough overhead, lifting its wings for flight, and a serpent wreathing up to it. It was not finished yet. He trembled with passion, at last able to create the new, sharp body of his Eve. At the sides, at the far sides, at either end, were two angels covering their faces with their wings. They were like trees. As he went to the marsh in the twilight, he felt that the angels with covered faces were standing back as he went by. The darkness was of their shadows and the covering of their faces. When he went through the canal bridge, the evening glowed in its last deep colours. The sky was dark blue. The stars glittered from afar, very remote, and approaching above the darkening cluster of the farm, above the paths of crystal, along the edge of the heavens. She waited for him like the glow of light, and as if his face were covered, and he dared not lift his face to look at her. Corn harvest came on. One evening they walked out through the farm buildings at nightfall. A large gold moon hung heavily to the grey horizon. Trees hovered tall, standing back in the dusk, waiting. Anna and the young man went on noiselessly by the hedge, along where the farm carts had made dark ruts in the grass. They came through a gate into a wide-open field, where still much light seemed to have spread against their faces. In the under-shadow the sheaves lay on the ground, where the reapers had left them, many sheaves like bodies prostrate in shadowy bulk. Others were riding hazily in shocks, like ships in the haze of moonlight and of dusk, farther off. They did not want to turn back, yet whither were they to go, towards the moon? For they were separate, single. "'We'll put up some sheaves,' said Anna, so they could remain there in the broad, open place. They went across the stubble to where the long rows of upreared shocks ended. Curiously populous that part of the field looked, where the shocks rode erect. The rest was open and prostrate. The air was all hoary silver. She looked around her. Trees stood vaguely at their distance, as if waiting like heralds for the signal to approach. In this space of vague crystal her heart seemed like a bell ringing. She was afraid lest the sound should be heard. 
"'You take this row,' she said to the youth, and passing on, she stooped in the next row of lying sheaves, grasping her hands in the tresses of the oats, lifting the heavy corn in either hand, carrying it, as it hung heavily against her, to the cleared space, where she set the two sheaves sharply down, bringing them together with a faint, keen clash. Her two bulks stood leaning together. He was coming, walking shadowily, with the gossamer dusk, carrying his two sheaves. She waited nearby. He set his sheaves with a keen, faint clash next to her sheaves. They rode unsteadily. He tangled the tresses of corn. It hissed like a fountain. He looked up and laughed. Then she turned away towards the moon, which seemed glowingly to uncover her bosom every time she faced it. He went to the vague emptiness of the field opposite, dutifully. They stooped, grasped the wet, soft hair of the corn, lifted the heavy bundles, and returned. She was always first. She set down her sheaves, making a penthouse with the others. He was coming shadowy across the stubble, carrying his bundles. She turned away, hearing only the sharp hiss of his mingling corn. She walked between the moon and his shadowy figure. She took her two new sheaves and walked towards him, as he rose from stooping over the earth. He was coming out of the near distance. She set down her sheaves to make a new stook. They were unsure. Her hands fluttered. Yet she broke away and turned to the moon, which laid bare her bosom, so felt as if her bosom were heaving and panting with moonlight. And he had to put up her two sheaves, which had fallen down. He worked in silence. The rhythm of the work carried him away again, as she was coming near. They worked together, coming and going in a rhythm which carried their feet and their bodies in tune. She stooped, she lifted the burden of sheaves, she turned her face to the dimness where he was, and went with her burden over the stubble. She hesitated, set down her sheaves. There was a swish and hiss of mingling oats. He was drawing near, and she must turn again. And there was the flaring moon laying bare her bosom again, making her drift and ebb like a wave. He worked steadily, engrossed, threading backwards and forwards like a shuttle across the strip of cleared stubble, weaving the long line of riding shocks nearer and nearer to the shadowy trees, threading his sheaves with hers. And always she was gone before he came. As he came she drew away, as he drew away she came. Were they never to meet? Gradually a low, deep-sounding will in him vibrated to her, tried to set her in accord, tried to bring her gradually to him, to a meeting, till they should be together, till they should meet as the sheaves that swished together. And the work went on. The moon grew brighter, clearer, the corn glistened. He bent over the prostrate bundles. There was a hiss as the sheaves left the ground, a trailing of heavy bodies against him, a dazzle of moonlight on his eyes. And then he was setting the corn together at the stook, and she was coming near. He waited for her. He fumbled at the stook. She came, but she stood back till he drew away. He saw her in shadow, a dark column, and spoke to her, and she answered. She saw the moonlight flash question on his face, but there was a space between them, and he went away. The work carried them, rhythmic. Why was there always a space between them? Why were they apart? Why, as she came up from under the moon, would she halt and stand off from him? 
Why was he held away from her? His will drummed persistently, darkly. It drowned everything else. Into the rhythm of his work there came a pulse and a steadied purpose. He stooped, he lifted the weight, he heaved it towards her, setting it as in her, under the moonlight space, and he went back for more. Ever with increasing closeness he lifted the sheaves and swung, striding to the centre with them. Ever he drove her more nearly to the meeting. Ever he did his share and drew towards her, overtaking her. There was only the moving to and fro in the moonlight, engrossed, the swinging in the silence that was marked only by the splash of sheaves, and silence and a splash of sheaves. And ever the splash of his sheaves broke swifter, beating up to hers, and ever the splash of her sheaves recurred monotonously, unchanging, and ever the splash of his sheaves beat nearer. Till at last they met at the shock, facing each other, sheaves in hand, and he was silvery with moonlight, with a moonlit, shadowy face that frightened her. She waited for him. "'Put yours down,' she said. "'No, it's your turn.' His voice was twanging and insistent. She set her sheaves against the shock. He saw her hands glisten among the spray of grain, and he dropped his sheaves, and he trembled as he took her in his arms. He had overtaken her, and it was his privilege to kiss her. She was sweet and fresh with the night air, and sweet with the scent of grain, and the whole rhythm of him beat into his kisses, and still he pursued her, in his kisses, and still she was not quite overcome. He wondered over the moonlight on her nose, all the moonlight upon her, all the darkness within her, all the night in his arms, darkness and shine, he possessed of it all. All the night for him now, to unfold, to venture within, all the mystery to be entered, all the discovery to be made. Trembling with keen triumph, his heart was white as a star as he drove his kisses nearer. "'My love!' she called, in a low voice, from afar. The low sound seemed to call to him from far off, under the moon, to him who was unaware. He stopped, quivered, and listened. "'My love!' came again, the low plaintive call, like a bird unseen in the night. He was afraid. His heart quivered and broke. He was stopped. "'Anna,' he said, as if he answered her from a distance, unsure, "'My love!' And he drew near, and she drew near. "'Anna,' he said, in wonder and the birth-pain of love. "'My love!' she said, her voice growing rapturous and they kissed on the mouth, in rapture and surprise, long, real kisses. The kiss lasted there among the moonlight. He kissed her again, and she kissed him, and again they were kissing together, till something happened in him. He was strange. He wanted her. He wanted her exceedingly. She was something new. They stood there folded, suspended in the night, and his whole being quivered with surprise, as from a blow. He wanted her, and he wanted to tell her so, but the shock was too great to him. He had never realised before. He trembled with irritation and unusedness. He did not know what to do. He held her more gently, gently, much more gently. The conflict was gone by, and he was glad and breathless and almost in tears. But he knew he wanted her, something fixed in him for ever. He was hers, 
and he was very glad and afraid. He did not know what to do, as they stood there in the open, moonlit field. He looked through her hair at the moon, which seemed to swim, liquid bright. She sighed, and seemed to wake up. Then she kissed him again. Then she loosened herself away from him, and took his hand. It hurt him when she drew away from his breast. It hurt him with a chagrin. Why did she draw away from him? But she held his hand. I want to go home, she said, looking at him in a way he could not understand. He held close to her hand. He was dazed and he could not move. He did not know how to move. She drew him away. He walked helplessly beside her, holding her hand. She went with bent head. Suddenly he said, as the simple solution stated itself to him, "'We'll get married, Anna.' She was silent. "'We'll get married, Anna, shall we?' She stopped in the field again and kissed him, clinging to him passionately, in a way he could not understand. He could not understand. But he left it all now, to marriage. That was the solution now, fixed ahead. He wanted her. He wanted to be married to her. He wanted to have her altogether, as his own for ever and he waited, intent, for the accomplishment. But there was all the while a slight tension of irritation. He spoke to his uncle and aunt that night. Uncle, he said, Anna and me think of getting married. Oh, I, said Brangwen. But how? You have no money, said the mother. The youth went pale. He hated these words. But he was like a gleaming, bright pebble, something bright and inalterable. He did not think. He sat there in his hard brightness, and did not speak. "'Have you mentioned it to your own mother?' asked Brangwen. "'No, I'll tell her on Saturday. You'll go and see her?' "'Yes.' There was a long pause. "'And what are you going to marry on? Your pound a week?' Again the youth went pale, as if the spirit were being injured in him. "'I don't know,' he said, looking at his uncle, with his bright, inhuman eyes, like a hawk's. Brangwen stirred in hatred. "'It needs knowing,' he said. "'I shall have the money later on,' said the nephew. "'I will raise some now, and pay it back then.' "'Oh, I! And why this desperate hurry? "'She's a child of eighteen, and you're a boy of twenty. "'You're neither of you of age, to do as you like yet.' Will Brangwen ducked his head and looked at his uncle, with swift, mistrustful eyes, like a caged hawk. "'What does it matter how old she is, and how old I am?' he said. "'What's the difference between me now and when I'm thirty? "'A big difference, let us hope. "'But you have no experience. "'You have no experience and no money. "'Why do you want to marry without experience or money?' asked the aunt. "'What experience do I want, aunt?' asked the boy. "'And if Brangwen's heart had not been hard and intact with anger, "'like a precious stone, he would have agreed.' "'Will Brangwen went home, strange and untouched.' He felt he could not alter from what he was fixed upon. His will was set. To alter it, he must be destroyed. And he would not be destroyed. He had no money, but he would get some from somewhere. It did not matter. He lay awake for many hours, hard and clear and unthinking, his soul crystallising more inalterably. Then he went fast asleep. It was as if his soul had turned into a hard crystal, he might tremble and quiver and suffer. It did not alter. The next morning Tom Brangwen, inhuman with anger, spoke to Anna. "'What's this about wanting to get married?' he said. She stood, paling a little, 
her dark eyes springing to the hostile, startled look of a savage thing that will defend itself, but trembles with sensitiveness. "'I do,' she said, out of her unconsciousness. His anger rose, and he would have liked to break her. "'You do, you do, and what for?' he sneered with contempt. The old, childish agony, the blindness that could recognise nobody, the palpitating antagonism as of a raw, helpless, undefended thing, came back on her. "'I do because I do!' she cried, in the shrill, hysterical way of her childhood. "'You are not my father. My father is dead. You are not my father.' She was still a stranger. She did not recognise him. The cold blade cut down, deep into Brangwen's soul. It cut him off from her. "'And what if I'm not?' he said. But he could not bear it. It had been so passionately dear to him, her father, daddy. He went about for some days as if stunned. His wife was bemused. She did not understand. She only thought the marriage was impeded for want of money and position. There was a horrible silence in the house. Anna kept out of sight as much as possible. She could be for hours alone. Will Brangwen came back, after stupid scenes at Nottingham. He too was pale and blank, but unchanging. His uncle hated him. He hated this youth, who was so inhuman and obstinate. Nevertheless, it was to Will Brangwen that the uncle, one evening, handed over the shares which he had transferred to Anna Lensky. They were for two thousand five hundred pounds. Will Brangwen looked at his uncle. It was a great deal of the marsh capital here given away. The youth, however, was only colder and more fixed. He was abstract, purely a fixed will. He gave the shares to Anna. After which she cried for a whole day, sobbing her eyes out. And at night, when she had heard her mother go to bed, she slipped down and hung in the doorway. Her father sat in his heavy silence, like a monument. He turned his head slowly. "'Daddy!' she cried from the doorway, and she ran to him, sobbing, as if her heart would break. "'Daddy! Daddy! Daddy!' She crouched on the hearthrug with her arms round him and her face against him. His body was so big and comfortable, but something hurt her head intolerably. She sobbed almost with hysteria. He was silent, with his hand on her shoulder. His heart was bleak. He was not her father. That beloved image she had broken. Who was he, then? A man put apart with those whose life has no more developments. He was isolated from her. There was a generation between them. He was old. He had died out from hot life. A great deal of ash was in his fire, cold ash. He felt the inevitable coldness, and in bitterness forgot the fire. He sat in his coldness of age and isolation. He had his own wife, and he blamed himself. He sneered at himself, for this clinging to the young, wanting the young to belong to him. The child who clung to him wanted her child-husband, as was natural, and from him, Brangwen, she wanted help, so that her life might be properly fitted out. But love she did not want. Why should there be love between them, between the stout, middle-aged man and this child? How could there be anything between them but mere human willingness to help each other? He was her guardian, no more. His heart was like ice his face cold and expressionless. She could not move him any more than a statue. She crept to bed and cried, but she was going to be married to Will Brangwen, 
and then she need not bother any more. Brangwen went to bed with a hard, cold heart, and cursed himself. He looked at his wife. She was still his wife. Her dark hair was threaded with grey. Her face was beautiful in its gathering age. She was just fifty. How poignantly he saw her! and he wanted to cut out some of his own heart which was incontinent, and demanded still to share the rapid life of youth. How he hated himself! His wife was so poignant and timely. She was still young and naive, with some girl's freshness. But she did not want any more the fight, the battle, the control, as he, in his incontinence, still did. She was so natural, and he was ugly, unnatural, in his inability to yield place. How hideous, this greedy middle age, which must stand in the way of life like a large demon! What was missing in his life that, in his ravening soul, he was not satisfied? He had had that friend at school, his mother, his wife, and Anna. What had he done? He had failed with his friend, he had been a poor son, but he had known satisfaction with his wife, let it be enough. He loathed himself for the state he was in over Anna, yet he was not satisfied. It was agony to know it. Was his life nothing? Had he nothing to show, no work? He did not count his work, anybody could have done it. What had he known but the long marital embrace with his wife? Curious that this was what his life amounted to. At any rate it was something, it was eternal. He would say so to anybody, and be proud of it. He lay with his wife in his arms, and she was still his fulfilment, just the same as ever. And that was the be-all and end-all. Yes, and he was proud of it. But the bitterness, underneath, that there still remained an unsatisfied Tom Brangwen, who suffered agony because a girl cared nothing for him. He loved his sons, he had them also. But it was the further, the creative life with the girl, he wanted as well. Oh, and he was ashamed. He trampled himself to extinguish himself. What weariness! There was no peace, however old one grew. One was never right, never decent, never master of oneself. It was as if his hope had been in the girl. Anna quickly lapsed again into her love for the youth. Will Brangwen had fixed his marriage for the Saturday before Christmas, and he waited for her, in this bright, unquestioning fashion, until then. He wanted her. She was his. He suspended his being till the day should come. The wedding day. December the twenty-third had come into being for him as an absolute thing. He lived in it. He did not count the days, but like a man who journeys in a ship, he was suspended till the coming to port. He worked at his carving. He worked in his office. He came to see her. All was but a form of waiting, without thought or question. She was much more alive. She wanted to enjoy courtship. He seemed to come and go like the wind, without asking why or whither. But she wanted to enjoy his presence. For her he was the kernel of life, to touch him alone was bliss. But for him she was the essence of life. She existed as much when he was at his carving in his lodging in Ilkeston as when she sat looking at him in the marsh kitchen. In himself he knew her but his outward faculties seemed suspended. He did not see her with his eyes, nor hear her with his voice. And yet he trembled, sometimes into a kind of swoon, holding her in his arms. 
they would stand sometimes, folded together in the barn, in silence. Then to her, as she felt his young, tense figure with her hands, the bliss was intolerable, intolerable the sense that she possessed him. For his body was so keen and wonderful, it was the only reality in her world. In her world there was this one tense, vivid body of a man, and then many other shadowy men, all unreal. In him she touched the centre of reality, and they were together, he and she, at the heart of the secret. How she clutched him to her, his body the central body of all life. Out of the rock of his form the very fountain of life flowed. But to him she was a flame that consumed him. The flame flowed up his limbs, flowed through him, till he was consumed, till he existed only as an unconscious, dark transit of flame, deriving from her. Sometimes in the darkness a cow coughed. There was in the darkness a slow sound of cud chewing, and it all seemed to flow round them and upon them as the hot blood flows through the womb, laving the unborn young. Sometimes when it was cold they stood to be lovers in the stables, where the air was warm and sharp with ammonia, and during these dark vigils he learned to know her, her body against his. They drew nearer and nearer together, the kisses came more subtly, close and fitting. So when in the thick darkness a horse suddenly scrambled to its feet, with a dull, thunderous sound, they listened as one person listening, they knew as one person they were conscious of the horse. Tom Brangwen had taken them a cottage at Cossethay, on a twenty-one years' lease. Will Brangwen's eyes lit up as he saw it. It was the cottage next the church, with dark yew-trees, very black old trees, along the side of the house, and the grassy front garden, a red, squarish cottage, with a low slate roof, and low windows. It had a long dairy scullery, a big flagged kitchen, and a low parlour that went one step up from the kitchen. There were whitewashed beams across the ceilings, and odd corners with cupboards. Looking out through the windows there was the grassy garden, the procession of black yew-trees down one side, and along the other sides a red wall with ivy separating the place from the high road and the churchyard. The old little church, with its small spire on a square tower, seemed to be looking back at the cottage windows. "'There'll be no need to have a clock,' said Will Brangwen, peeking out at the white clock-face on the tower, his neighbour. At the back of the house was a garden adjoining the paddock, a cow-shed with standing for two cows, pig-coats and fowl-houses. Will Brangwen was very happy. Anna was glad to think of being mistress of her own place. Tom Brangwen was now the fairy godfather. He was never happy unless he was buying something. Will Brangwen, with his interest in all woodwork, was getting the furniture. He was left to buy tables and round-staved chairs, and the dresses, quite ordinary stuff, but such as was identified with his cottage. Tom Brangwen, with more particular thought, spied out what he called handy little things for her. He appeared with a set of new-fangled cooking-pans, with a special sort of hanging lamp, though the rooms were so low, with canny little machines for grinding meat, or mashing potatoes, or whisking eggs. Anna took a sharp interest in what he bought, though she was not always pleased. Some of the little contrivances, which he thought so canny, left her doubtful. Nevertheless, she was always expectant, 
On market days there was always a long thrill of anticipation. He arrived with the first darkness, the copper lamps of his cart glowing, and she ran to the gate as he, a dark, burly figure up in the cart, was bending over his parcels. "'It's cupboard lovers brings you out so sharp,' he said, his voice resounding in the cold darkness. Nevertheless he was excited, and she, taking one of the cart lamps, poked and peered among the jumble of things he had brought, pushing aside the oil or implements he had got for himself. She dragged out a pair of small, strong bellows, registered them in her mind, and then pulled uncertainly at something else. It had a long handle, and a piece of brown paper round the middle of it, like a waistcoat. "'What's this?' she said, poking. He stopped to look at her. She went to the lamplight by the horse, and stood there bent over the new thing, while her hair was like bronze, her apron white and cheerful. Her fingers plucked busily at the paper. She dragged forth a little ringer, with clean india-rubber rollers. She examined it critically, not knowing quite how it worked. She looked up at him. He stood a shadowy presence beyond the light. "'How does it go?' she asked. "'Why, it's for pulping turnips,' he replied. She looked at him. His voice disturbed her. "'Don't be silly. It's a little mangle,' she said. "'How do you stand it, though?' "'You screw it on the side of your wash-tub.' He came and held it out to her. "'Oh, yes!' she cried, with one of her little skipping movements, which still came when she was suddenly glad. And without another thought she ran off into the house, leaving him to untackle the horse, and when he came into the scullery he found her there, with the little ringer fixed on the dolly-tub, turning blissfully at the handle, and Tilly beside her, exclaiming, "'My word, that's a natty little thing!' "'That'll save you lugging your inside out. "'That's the latest contraption, that is.' "'And Anna turned away at the handle, "'with great gusto of possession. "'Then she let Tilly have a turn. "'It fair runs by itself,' said Tilly, "'turning on and on. "'Your clothes'll nip out on to the line.' End of chapter 4, part 2 Read by Tony Foster